Well, welcome back everybody to our annual Tech Talent Trends podcast. Many of you know, a year ago, we dedicated an entire podcast to the state of technology talent. At that time, we could sense that we were hitting an inflection point from a talent hiring perspective. Fast forward another year and things have changed dramatically, which is why I'm excited to shine the light on two of the top executive recruiters in the CIO and overall IT leadership space. Uh, no doubt you know them both as they are considered best in class and top industry thought leaders. They're also uh, a lot of fun. They, uh, they like the banter. They're a little bit edgy, which makes them really, really fun and interesting. Sean Banerjee is the managing partner of the technology, digital, and data leaders practice for Caldwell Partners. Sean guides clients seeking to navigate the convergence of talent and technology and its implications across all facets of the evolving digital enterprise. These efforts have resulted in the succession, selection, and recruitment of those catalyst leaders who reside at the intersection of commerce and technology. Martha Heller is also joining us. She is widely followed thought leader on technology leadership talent and is currently CEO of Heller Search, a premier executive search firm specializing in technology executive search. Over the course of her accomplished career, Martha has become an authoritative voice in executive search. She has recruited hundreds of CIOs, CTOs, architects, and other senior technology positions and become a trusted advisor to executives around the country. So Martha, let's start with you. Welcome. And uh, would you kick us off by providing your big picture perspectives on the state of the industry or more specifically, the state of technology, talent, hiring, and so on? Sure, I'd be happy to do that, Dan. You know, I think we're in a world of perception versus reality right now. So the perception is that all the tech layoffs that we've seen from the big high-tech companies has wound up uh, as a glut of talent in the market. So all you have to do as the CIO of an ent a large enterprise, you know, walk downstairs, <laughs> wave a checkbook, and all of the wonderful data engineers will just come filing it into your office. But of course, that is not the case. When we talk to CIOs about their challenges, hiring continues to be at the top of the list. And it's across the board. It's data engineers and security architects and enterprise architects. Lots of need for architecture these days. Salesforce developers. So the demand for talent is still greater than the supply. That's at the CIO staff level. At the CIO level, CIO search likes change. When we are exiting a challenging economic uh, uh, cycle and we're entering into a world of innovation and digital investments, companies want a new CIO. When we're where we are now, which is companies recognizing that with inflation and interest rates, uh, profits are not what we all wanted them to be. Now we need more, more cost management. And so we need a new CIO. Now we all know that good CIOs should be able to thrive in times of investment and cost management, but often the impression they make on their executive committee is that they do one or the other. And so the market right now is very active for CIO, regardless of the economic cycle that we're in. Fascinating. Uh, Sean Banerjee, welcome to you. And uh, always great to collaborate, Sean, and love to hear your thoughts uh, on these big topics. Um, look, I, I think uh, Martha shared a very, you know, balanced and accurate summation of what's happening in kind of the broader 
IT ecosystem and, you know, the fact that she's looking at it kind of at a full stack level is, is really beneficial. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting time. And, you know, when people always say that, I said, well, is it interesting, good or bad? And I said, depends on your, your perspective. Um, we have had a period of dramatic inflation in the IT talent pool for a number of years. We have seen, you know, some of the most significant percentage-wise wage inflation that, you know, I have in my 30 years of, of being in search. Um, and at the moment, we are seeing, you know, kind of that pendulum swing back more towards um, a balanced approach where organizations are perhaps looking at cost optimization versus, you know, as aggressively investing for innovation. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't continue to invest for innovation because that is absolutely the case. Um, but organizations that understand this shifting dynamic, what they're saying is, look, you know, 18 months, 24 months ago, our IT investment dollar, whether it be for technology, resources, people um, was maybe worth 85, 90 cents, 95 cents on that dollar. Well, we have an opportunity now, if we have both the courage and the capital to put it to work, to true up on that. So your investment dollar is now worth, you know, close to a dollar and in some cases, even more than a dollar. And we look at that as uh, investing into the skit. So when the market's a little bit of a skid and the cost of things come down, so advertising, resources, the organizations that are putting their capital to work are not only finding that they're gaining better value in the moment, but when the market invariably returns, they're that much ahead of their competitors who are chasing. And the irony is that technology investment is a key to cost management. All of those companies that want to use AI, for example, for productivity gains, have a beautiful cost management tool on their hands, but not if their infrastructure is so messy and legacy that they can't get any benefit out of that investment. So that's where the irony is, in order to have the cost management and productivity gains from technology, you need to invest in new technology. So I think companies are sort of caught to get the cost management, they need to invest in the technology. It's an unprecedented time right now. If you have the will and the resources to be able to attract talent that, you know, perhaps, you know, would have ignored you or was unaffordable in the not too distant past. And if you as an executive committee have the digital literacy and foresight to understand how the impact of all of this technology investing is going to imp impact your company long term. I find that uh, the brilliant technology resources, they want to go into a company where not only is there exciting technology to work on, but they're connected to the mission, they're connected to the outcome, they believe in the company. And companies that have not as of yet defined where they're going through technology will have a harder time recruiting those folks. So good. I mean, well, I appreciate you both so much. And, you know, Sean used that word interesting, right? These are interesting times. And I had a CIO once tell me, though, he said, interesting is always a euphemism for something else, uh, which is which is fascinating, right? And you're both uh, word people, so you appreciate that. But I have a question for both of you. I, I reached out to a number of the CIO CXOs who were 
our top podcast guests of 2023. And I wanted to get their questions about the state of technology talent, what's going on out there. So the first one comes from Avi Dar, who notes the overarching question is around the nature of work. Okay, so he asks, what is the realistic mix of in-office work versus remote work that will become the new normal? There is currently a mismatch in expectations between management and the workforce. Who will win? Interesting question. So let me hear from both of you. Someone jump in. I believe the workforce will win because I think imposing archaic management principles on a new workforce is a losing proposition. That being said, the companies that know they need an in-person culture, one, they're going to be competing with all of those businesses that aren't requiring relocation. But the other is, if they're going to insist on an in-person culture, they have to make it worthwhile. They have to make the time in the office meaningful, again, to the mission or to the culture or to the ability to build relationships. But if it's same old, same old cubicle culture, and now I've got to commute in, I moved away, now I've got to figure out, am I going to move back? I'm going to go to a company that isn't requiring that. Now, we'll all look back here. Let's all meet here in 10 years and see what has the impact of all of this remote work had on relationships, loyalty, uh, tenure, leadership, innovation. We'll all find out. But when we do a search and the demand is in person, Every day, we fill the search. It takes a lot longer, and you don't necessarily get the best technology talent in the market. I'll just say one more thing on this. If you decide we're not going to do an in-person, we're going to do remote, you can't just build a digital twin of your culture because the culture that you developed was dependent on an in-person culture, you know, from the before times. So CIOs would be uh, advised to be you know, movers and shakers in the creation of a new culture that works for us in this uh, uh, more remote hybrid uh, uh, work that we're in. So, Sean, the workforce going to win out. What do you think? I, I think ultimately, I mean, that will be the case. But I mean, let me perhaps take a step back to bring us forward. Right. So historically, uh, CIOs, um, certainly in mid-market and, and, you know, kind of fortune class global enterprises, were pioneers in multi-site management or multi-site leadership, right? Um, their organizations inherently, I mean, certainly you may have had critical mass at headquarters or, or wherever, but uh, you had, you know, CIOs who were dealing with different teams in different locations. Um, you saw, you know, with the advent of global resourcing, working with vendor partners who, you know, needed to be, you know, seamlessly integrated into your IT operations that may have been in South America, Asia, you know, Europe, wherever it might be. So CIOs really had a leg up on this and, and were pioneers in, in multi-site global management. I'm going to use the term management and, and leadership for the moment as the same, because I, I don't necessarily think they're the same thing. Um, and a lot of that was proved out during COVID back in, in 2019. And, and I think there was a tremendous fear on the part of many organizations and individuals and investors, certainly that, boy, you know, as the world kind of, quote unquote, went, you know, remote overnight, you know, that there's going to be tons of, um, you know, operational slowdown and, and um, in some cases, you know, fractures that would potentially bring kind of the wheels of commerce to, to a halt. Uh, and it was virtually seamless. We saw very little 
actual business interruption, business continuity uh, disruption. Uh, most organizations kind of, you know, were able to, you know, support their, you know, non-IT staff who moved into the home because essentially they were just using the same playbook by and large uh, that they had working with the IT organization for so long. Uh, bringing us to today, that cat is out of the bag, right? Um, so people's behaviors and expectations have been modified and changed. And the operating model itself has been proven that you can, in fact, run a large, complex global enterprise uh, in a remote fashion. Now, do you miss out on, you know, certain uh, elements of esprit de corps, mentorship, leadership, development, training, collaboration? You do in a purely hybrid model. But I think Martha, you know, makes a, a great point in that you have to adapt your culture to that operating world, to that digital hybrid model. And I do think that um, some of this is based on a, I'm not sure that, you know, the, the, the using this word, an older workforce has seen this work and they don't want to go back. And you have a younger workforce, particularly millennials, who have known nothing but this. Um, but I do think that there is a honest dialogue that needs to take place, which says, you know, there are certain skills and opportunities that are only gained from being physically present with each other. And should you choose to opt out of that, you need to understand the potential consequence. So I think that transparency, that, that you know, authenticity of leadership and courage to have those conversations and recognize that, you know, we are going to be working in a world that, you know, invariably uh, has on-site, remote, and hybrid, um, but people need to take ownership for their own decisions and then, you know, share in the accountability of those outcomes. I was talking to Fletcher Previn, the CIO of Cisco, about this very topic, and he gave me a nice metaphor that uh, relate, think of relate work relationships as a bank. When you meet at the water cooler and you grab a cup of coffee and how was your weekend, you're put making deposits in that relationship bank. Most Zoom meetings are, let's get down to business. Who's got the agenda? Are we done? We done? We're out. Get that to me by three o'clock this afternoon. You're making withdrawals. Remote work is mostly withdrawals without a lot of deposits. So if we're going to live in a hybrid world or a fully remote world, we need to figure out digitally how to make deposits. And I will say one more thing on this. I've always found it so ironic that the CIO role, which ultimately, yes, it's leadership, it's people, but there's technology in there somewhere, right? CIOs know technology. The IT department, if you always thought of like IT has a culture and then the rest of the business has a culture. And yet who is taking a leadership role in defining this new world that we're living in, living in its CIOs? So I know we are going to talk about all the different skill sets of CIOs, but we're adding another to the already considerable list, which is culture definer, culture taste maker. Who would have thought that the most technical would be driving the most human of, of decisions? That's a great segue, Martha. I want to ask Sean a question. So John Hill, uh, Dr. John Hill, got his doctorate early this year, somehow figured that out, got it done. But... John Hill provides some fascinating color commentary as to what is expected of a CIO today. And John said, CEOs are looking for a technologist. So the CEO is looking for a technologist who is a disruptive innovator, can drive transformation in the business, 
has excellent business and financial acumen, is a great leader, is an exceptional communicator, influencer, is strategic, and can ensure that operations run flawlessly. And redheaded and left-handed. <laughs> How hard can this be, Sean, right? <laughs> then he goes on, then the CEO must execute in an era of rapid technology evolution, expectations of faster time to market, an unbelievable cyber threat landscape, a complex network of solutions in various clouds, data privacy regulations, escalating technology costs, an insufficient level of talent entering the marketplace. So, not for the faint of heart, his question is, what will it take to be a CI in the future, or a similar title, and are we really doing the right things to develop a deep enough pool of candidates that meet the qualifications? Amazing question, John. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I've known John for a long time, um, and, you know, he is, I think, a great example of, of someone who has demonstrated the evolution of the role. I mean, he's, re he's really lived it. Um, you know, my comment or reaction, I, I think, to that statement is um, the CIO role or one of any kind of meaningful consequence has always been and always will be bigger than any one individual. There is simply no way for any one human being, in, in my experience, to sustainably over time perform all of these tasks and meet all of these mandates uh, at a high level of proficiency without something going awry or having a, their constitution give out, right? I mean, these jobs, I mean, what you have described is you know, someone who can be everything to everybody all of the time. Uh, and I think we all know that's really a recipe for disaster. Um, but John's comment around developing others, that's the single, I have never met a leader, a CEO, a CFO, a CIO, anyone, CHRO, who was a top performer that had not built an incredibly talented cadre of leaders around them. Um, historically, we, that's one of the reasons we saw team moves, right? You, you saw individuals kind of, you know, move from one role to another, and there was this fantastic followership that went along with it, uh, because there is a recognition that these roles were, were bigger than any one person. And there's a direct correlation, and we'll talk about some of the things later in the podcast, I'm sure, between the performance of the individual CIO and the performance of the organization, which also is another measure that we, you know, spend a lot of time on. Um, but, you know, we have got to continue to invest in people. Uh, and we also have to recognize that, you know, sometimes, you know, there are individuals who are going to be fantastic at doing certain things who, for whatever reason, don't have the proclivity, the ambition, the desire uh, to take on, you know, a, a, another, say, a CIO role. Others will, and being able to recognize that and take a purpose-built approach to developing those people is such an important part of this kind of leadership calculus that, that John's referencing. I wonder also, Sean and Dan, whether, you know, as we become a business technology enterprise, right, every company is seeing software and data play a more central role in their products and services. When do CIOs get out of the mode of delivering technology unto their business partners who receive it? And when do they design and govern an environment by which 
business partners can do a little more self-service, citizen development, citizen creation, you know, uh, uh, self-service data and analytics. There gets once, if technology is your business, so you're loading all of these skills into your technology department, whether it's to the CIO or the wonderful talent he or she creates, when is it incumbent on business units to start developing technology resources of their own? As we shift, you know, we've been an agrarian uh, country for years, hundreds of years. Then we became an industrial company. That's when we set all this up. We're not an, an industrial economy anymore. We're a digital or even a data economy. And so the notion that tech does tech and everybody else does business, that cannot stand. So I think seeing some distributed technology leadership into some of the other functions. Now, that can be a scary, gnarly way to go where we wind up with a lot of spaghetti architecture. But to have every technology-related responsibility fall on the shoulders of an IT department, we cannot continue in that direction, in my opinion. And I I think, you know, Martha, you're talking in in some respects a little bit of a back to the future, right? And we see these cycles, you know, we've been doing this long enough, you see it. I mean, uh, there was once a time where, you know, the, the, you know, enterprise or group CIO's office, um, you know, ostensibly was the top function within the IT, you know, ecosystem of a, a, you know, multi-business line or multi-geography enterprise. But the truth was the real action, the sexy stuff, the commercial stuff was happening in the business units and uh, their individual, you know, CIOs or whatever the designation might have been. And their, you know, corresponding teams that were working in lockstep with um, their business stakeholders. And in fact, you know, we saw in certain, you know, financial services industries as uh, trading and, and other functions went, you know, fully electronic we found that there were, you know, people who had historically or, tradi- or had started out badged IT, you know, they, they became the business because they had greater proficiency with the systems and protocols around trading than some of the traditional traders did. Right. That's right. It's back and forth. And in the end, it's architecture and governance. Martha, a little while ago, you made reference to uh, culture building, talent building, and, and one of the best out there at that is, uh, is our friend at Oshkosh Corporation, Anu Kare. Uh, and Anu has a, a great question around what he calls the rebirth of CIO. So he asked, five years back, there was a trend to hire a separate person in the chief digital officer role, and now the role has emerged as CDIO, chief information digital officer. Is this a rebirth of the CIO role? How are CIOs performing in their new avatar of CDIO? Well, first, I have to tell you about a great acronym I heard the other day, which is C-idiot which is cheap information, digital innovation, operations, and technology. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> we haven't recruited a C, a C idiot just yet. You know, it's funny because I'll just tell you a story that is indicative of what I'm seeing happening around boards and the ELT. We were kicking off the search for a large uh, global equipment maker, And uh, the person leaving who we were backfilling was a CIO uh, and they loved him. So, you know, you get one of those clone the outgoing person, except a little more of this and a little less of this. And uh, so it was ERP and information security and certainly tiring a digital thread through order to cash. So there was digital. 
And so we wrote a position description. We sent it to the CEO and he came back and said, looks great. One minor change. The board wants to call this a CTO. So I said, okay, CTO is not a CIO. They are different roles. Uh, And so we pushed back and the board said, we like the CTO role because it's sexier. Now, I don't know how often boards use the word sexier, but in this case, they did. And so I wrote a whole uh, talking points for the board about what's a CTO, what's a CIO, what's a chief digital officer. So this took a whole back and forth cycle, uh, which uh, we wouldn't have done, say, two years ago. In the end, we we settled for chief digital information technology officer. That's what we went with. But here's what I think will happen and hope will happen. We are living in a digital world. There will be the point where digital goes away. We don't have a chief oxygen officer. I believe digital now connotes change, but once we all acknowledge that we've gotten there, we'll lose that title and I think we're gonna be back to CIO. So the two models that I see are, we have a CIO and he or she is great at implementation, But in terms of innovation and really thinking about where we're going from a digital perspective, we're going to fly in uh, somebody who was a digital business leader or maybe an e-commerce executive or maybe somebody from marketing. They're going to have a digital strategy, which is a technology strategy, but we already have a technology strategy. Oops, now we have two. So the more effective chief digital officer route, I believe, is a CIO who can prove his or her implementation can lean in to products in the market, to culture, to digital transformation, and become the chief digital officer. I predict, again, what's great about predicting is nobody ever checks back to see if you were right or not, but I predict that we will lose this title digital soon enough and we'll have our CIO back. Interesting. it's it's interesting, Dan, for sure. Again, you know that word "interesting." Um, there's a, a a great movie. Um, it's a Ridley Scott movie. It's it's called Kingdom of Heaven, and uh, I highly recommend people watching it. It it kind of takes place in the times of the the Crusade. You know, fantastic cast, and there's a scene near the end where uh, the one of the protagonists, um, who is a crusading knight named uh, Balian, uh, asks the um, Saracen leader, uh, Saladin, he says, you know, what is uh, Jerusalem, you know, worth? And the guy kind of looks at him and takes a step back and he says, it's worth nothing and it's worth everything. And it's kind of the same with titles. Titles are worth nothing and they're worth everything. And depending upon the organization, the industry, the content of the role, and the desired outcomes, um, they are incredibly important. Um, At the same time, though, you know, I encourage people to look beyond the actual title itself and look at those other, you know, pieces that I referenced, content, mandate, reporting, structure, right? What is it intended to do? And what we encourage our clients is to align and designate a title that most genuinely reflects those other pieces of the equation. Um, You know, we constantly are in the market and, you know, very often, you know, you have to educate every time you have to educate the candidate, the prospect around, you know, what is the role, right? You know, it's a CTO, it's a CDO, it's a CIO chief innovation. 
all these have different, you know, flavors uh, within kind of this uh, couture of, of, of different titles. Um, and you have to take it on a case by case basis. And, and I, I could see this coming uh, full circle at, at some point. I mean, that, that absolutely, uh, you know, could be the case. Um, but I still, I, I'm finding just in the conversations we're having with, you know, private equity investors and, you know, boards, um, that they remain, you know, in a conundrum. Uh, and part of where, you know, folks like Martha and I bring assistance is, you know, providing them with a guidepost to understand what is it that you're ultimately looking to achieve and let's craft a role and title that is going to give you the best opportunity of getting that person who will help you get to that journey. Yeah, what's the uh, what's the joke, Sean? If you've read one CIG description, you've read one CIG description, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I, here's the thing: I have not seen any C idiot, um, but what there used to be the old. There, I mean, this is how far we've come. There used to be the old saying: "You know, CIO is good for career is over." And exactly, that and, and that couldn't be farther from the truth today. That's right. 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 Here's a topic that you kind of touched on earlier. I'll have you both talk this. Maybe you can go first, Martha. But Anita Klopfenstein from Little Caesars, uh, amazing, amazing leader. Uh, she, she asked, from an executive search perspective, what skills are companies looking for at the executive level? What is the most critical skill set? Uh, has there been a shift in the desired skill set over time? I mean, what I'd say for CEOs, what they're looking for is transformation, they're looking for innovation. They're looking for operational excellence. It's all the things they've always been looking for. But what I would say is the CIOs who come in and are effective bring something additional to all of those skills that we've been enumerating throughout this conversation, and that is digital literacy. You know, we've been saying for a long time that CIOs need to know the business as well as every business leader. And yet they also have to have depth in technology. But leave those acronyms at the door, right? Use your business voice in business meetings and use your tech voice with the team. We've been saying that for a long time. When does it become incumbent upon board members and other ELT members to know a thing or two about APIs and IoT and a composable uh, uh, architecture and analytics and AI? So for example, a CEO might say, hey, I want AI, but I don't want to clean up my enterprise data because I don't want to spend that money. Well, there's a conflict there between getting benefit out of AI and, and not cleaning up your enterprise data. When does, the, you know, re when does a, a, a technology savvy CFO understand that cloud FinOps is a thing? When does it digitally savvy CHRO understand that designing a workforce for the need that we're all going to have for data scientists become his or her most important job. So we focus so much that the CIO needs to get digitally savvy and business savvy. The rest of the executive committee needs to know a thing or two about technology. In fact, one question I ask every CIO, it's my favorite question, I say, if you could wave a magic wand, over all your key stakeholders so that they wake up tomorrow morning just accepting something about complexity or governance or TCO or timing or anything, what would it be? And the list is long and they always say, can I have two magic wands? I say, you can have as many as you want. So, you know, I believe that 
I've never seen digital literacy on a position description, but it is an increasing requirement of CIOs, whether it's on the PD or not. Mm. Well, thanks, Sean. How would you how would you respond to Anita? Yeah, I, look, I, I think um, fortunately we've seen an evolution, and um, you know there was a time I'm going to you know date this statement because uh, CEOs often don't fly commercial anymore. They you know probably have their you know own corporate jet. But back when they did, you know, kind of the running joke among CIOs, if you were to, you know, get enough of them together, was kind of their their greatest enemy was the Seatback magazine. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, hey, I, 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 my CEO came to talk to me about this. And, you know, he had read about, you know, whatever in the back of the American Airlines, you know, Seatback magazine, the United States Seatback magazine. Um, and, you know, that there was, you know, there was, in jest, of course, but there was some some validity to that. Um, and IT in general was an enigma to people who worked outside of the function. Um, and we saw, I saw, you know, any number of CIOs effectively manipulate that to their advantage because they had stakeholders who, you know, didn't even pretend to have any sense of what IT was or did. And it allowed the CIO to have a very free hand in how she, he or she, you know, operate. Um, you know, there's the old, uh, you know, Sims, right? You know, Cy Sims. And he would always say, you know, our best customer is an educated customer. And that's happened now. And it's, you know, the course of, you know, a couple decades. And I think it's accelerated more recently. But we have seen a higher level of technical fluency, not necessarily people who are technical, but technical fluency within other stakeholder functions, whether it's finance, operations, supply chain, HR, et cetera. Um, and organizations that have that digital fluency um, kind of embedded in their, their leadership culture and ideally across, you know, top down in their organization, absolutely outperform those organizations that, you know, remain bifurcated or operating in a world where, you know, it's a tower of Babel. You know, your your CIO should be able to have an informed dialogue with your head of supply chain, right? You know, every there isn't a, a, a protocol, a function, a workflow, a business process that exists in virtually any modern enterprise that technology doesn't touch or enable. So in certain ways, the CIO has a real leg up in terms of, you know, speaking the other functional languages in the language of the business. Um, and as other stakeholders, you know, increase their fluency, and we, and we do see that happening as, you know, as Martha said, that kind of digi that, that digital uh, awareness, that digital fluency, I mean, that is something that, um, you know, hopefully will continue to accelerate. Martha, one of the things I always recommend to people uh, is the Heller Report. It comes out every Thursday morning, religiously. It's a great resource. <laughs> um, so if you haven't signed up, go subscribe to it. I, I look forward to it every week. But you recently had one of our other top podcast guests, uh, uh, Unisys CTO, Dwayne Allen. And he wrote an article for your, your publication titled, Reorienting the Enterprise to Take Advantage of Gen AI. So you've been in this business a long time. You've seen these technologies come and go. What's your take on all this right now? I have to say, Dan, I had a moment, like a um, existential moment a couple of weeks ago where I thought, is it time for me to retire? 
can I sit this AI one out? But then I got uh, energized and now I'm going into it headlong. So yes, everybody is writing about AI, talking about AI. Here's what I think is going to happen, which again is a little ironic. I think what's going to happen is everybody's going to want to do uh, AI again, Sean. The I used to work, I used to write for one of those airline magazines, by the way, Sean. So you're welcome to all those <laughs> CIOs out there. But uh, I think what's going to happen is we can run fit for purpose purpose AI tools. We can have AI write our marketing collateral for better or for worse. We can have AI do these spot things. But until we have an enterprise data strategy with enterprise data either in a data warehouse, in a data lake, whatever it is, AI tools will be just surfaced. They will never become a part of the habit or the processes of our business. So let's just talk about data for a second. Uh, when I ask CIOs, here's the, here's the arc. Data, data everywhere, but not a drop of value. Data in systems, data in acquisitions, data in regions, but it's not all together. Okay, once we've got our data together, now we need governance. What is a product? Who owns this data? Well, again, here we have CIOs making decisions that ultimately are business decisions and are even political. Master data management is political. So now we've got, our, we've got some governance. Great. Now we need, again, literacy. You're sending me all this data. I don't know what to do with it. And once we get over that hope, now we have monetization or value or data as an asset. If you ask most CIOs of large enterprise companies that are not in high tech and that have grown through acquisition, they're at data, data everywhere and not a drop of value. So I think all the AI think, oh, we're going to need, you know, uh, uh, MLL uh, developers and prompt engineers. Sure, we'll need all of that. I think we're going to need data stewards traditional data engineers who can actually get our data into shape. So you basically have, all right, we want AI. Great. Well, what's our overall data strategy? Hmm, to know that, we need to know our overall corporate or business strategy. Hmm, do we really have that? So I think all this AI is going to turn and point to some of the gaps in corporate strategy and the gaps in data strategy, data management and data infrastructure that are the reality you know, ChatGPT can write, you know, my, I'd love if ChatGPT would write my health report, by the way. I'm not there yet. But I think it's a far cry between these special purpose tools and true AI transformation at the enterprise level. Sean, I definitely want to get you in on this topic. And Anita Klaffenstein had, had a question related to what Martha just shared. She said, uh, with the explosion of AI, there appears to be new job titles in the market, national language processing engineers, language model trainers, prompt engineers. Are these titles here to stay? Or are they seem trendy for now? So take a big picture wherever you want, but also around the, the new roles. Sure. Um, so our personal you know, be belief here, uh, you know, I'll, I'll speak for my, myself, but I, I think I can you know, for my, my firm and, and a number of my colleagues, you know, what we're seeing right now with, you know, ChatGBT and, and a lot of the excitement around AI is to some extent, you know, a industry and a vendor community, which uh, is looking to monetize something that has, in fact, been around for some time um, and is perhaps still not quite as ready for prime time as, you know, some of the 
vendors might might like uh, buyers and influence to, to, to believe. So I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Vector Institute in, in Toronto. So the Vector Institute is one of, if not the leading um, AI, ML research institute in the world. Um, and uh, we've done some work for them. Uh, we're involved in a uh, really unique pilot with them around how AI and ML can be incorporated into talent and, and hiring. Um, and there's a gentleman there, his name is Jeffrey Hinton. And Jeffrey Hinton um, is a PhD in artificial intelligence. Uh, he actually, he was doing, he was running something called the Neurocomputation and Adaptive Perception Program at the University of Toronto. This was, you know, funded by the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. Uh, and he had his own neural network startup called DNN Research, uh, which kind of was spawned from that work at the University of Toronto. And Google actually acquired that company in 2013, and it has served as really the foundation for Google's uh, AI and, and ML deep learning programs. Take a guess when Jeffrey Hinton earned his PhD in artificial intelligence. And I'm not even going to ask you, Dan or Martha, what year. You just give me the decade. 70s. No, Correct. Sorry, 90s. 1978. Wow. Okay. So this I mean, there's a PhD in artificial intelligence in 1978 that was earned at the University of Edinburgh, right? So this wasn't, you know, if you want to think that, you know, Silicon Valley is the epicenter or that, you know, this is all new, that's simply not the case. The research, the heavy lifting that's been invested in this field has been going on for decades. Uh, there's an incredible book about the you know, emergence of Silicon Valley and the parallel of the microchip called Chip Wars, which I'd also you know, say is required reading. And what you learn is that you know, these things have been happening. Uh, there's been a cadence and a pace to innovation uh, as far as a, 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 you know, neural networks and AI and ML is concerned. Um, but we reached a inflection point, and I think some of this was economically motivated, where, you know, we saw a certain technology emerge. It was it, 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 it immediately kind of came into the hands of consumers versus a commercial or professional customer base, um, which, you know, was, you know, and today with social media, it spread like wildfire. Uh, and companies looked at that and said, hey, we've got a fantastic opportunity to monetize this phenomenon. So I, I, I think that, you know, um, we're in a period now where we are still early days. If we're on the journey, the ship is still, you know, we can look back and still see land. Um, but to your quest, specific question about these titles, you know, these, yeah, these, these are, you know, these titles will remain. They will evolve and morph over time. Um, but this is a field that will be, you know, a central catalyst for, you know, how business is conducted and how, you know, human beings go about living their lives, whether we like it or not. Uh, I certainly don't have the hubris to pretend I have any kind of monopoly on, let alone the right answers, or even commenting on it beyond, as an observer, I'm fascinated, I'm a believer, but I am not sure in what time frame we're going to actually see the application pay off in a real world measurable manner for for us and and sean 
I agree with everything you say there. And what I would add, I mean, look, insurance companies have been running AI for claims processing for years and years and years. But now it's in the public consciousness. Now it's in the hands of consumers. So, you know, what I think will be very interesting going forward is, well, let me say it this way. Way back in the day when I was at CIO Magazine, I had a column called Sound Off. And this was back when the internet was just coming around. And uh, the uh, uh, dean of an of, of a Ivy League divinity school uh, had pornography on his computer. And so the IT folks came in and then they had to deal with what are we going to do about this? So what was so interesting about that was because now you've got all this privacy and access problems, issues coming in from the internet, IT is put in a position of having to make some ethical choices, which seemed odd to me. So I sort of raised that as a discussion. That's where we're headed with AI. The ethical discussion about AI and when does, everything's been technology for technology's sake, or rather technology innovation at all costs. Yes, we pay attention to information security because we know that that can be a challenge. But we haven't really thought a lot about the ethical implications of the internet, the ethical implications of doing everything on your phone. Now ask a parent of a young person and they might say there are a lot of ethical implications to the fact that children live digital lives now. But I think what we're going to see, which I, I think has been absent from a discussion of technology innovation for a very long time, is what are the ethics behind you know, when the robots uh, rule the world. Oh, Martha, you, you know, no truer words, right? I mean, uh, with the deep fake technology that's now proliferating. Uh, and, you know, we, you know, we, I remember, you know, seeing the Terminator movie in the theater and thinking, you know, Skynet, boy, you know, what a crazy world. Well, you know, we've got drones, we've got, you know, ubiquitous, you know, Wi-Fi and connectivity. I mean, we're we're not that far off from, you know, in fact, we may even have surpassed what was considered science fiction uh, within our own lifetime, right? That's right. And we have a technocracy. And I believe that I coined that word, Dan. Try to give me credit on that one. Where we have a technocracy where who is making the decisions about how technology, the role technology plays in our lives. These are not necessarily people trained in ethics or even in the humanities. These are coders who are making decisions about how we humans should be living our lives. So that'll, here comes another word, another apt use of the word interesting. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to take us out here with two rounds of kind of the lightning round questions. Something I learned from you, Martha, years ago at a panel you led. And so. And, and Dan, I learned it from Mary Fran Johnson. Oh, there we go. Our, our, we all love Mary Fran. So people are realizing that you are both incredible communicators. You're very articulate. Um, you both have advanced degrees in communication and literature. And so you know that words matter, how you communicate a message matters. So I want to give you three options to, uh, to speak to, okay? So if I'm a candidate, uh, and I'll have you go first, Sean, and you go second, Martha, Martha. Just pick one that you want. So if I'm a candidate, how do I best tell the story around one of these scenarios? I've been on the bench for a long time. I've been fired. I've had a couple of short stints. So, Sean, pick any one you want, and then, Martha, you can take, take another one. Oh my gosh, these are, I mean, 
These are all great, Dan. Um, and in, in some ways, I mean, I have the, the same, you know, answer to, to all of them, the same counsel, I suppose, which is, you know, you, you've got to own it, right? You know, you, you've got to be accountable and authentic. I think, you know, we talk about, you know, you know, a lot of folks have been, you know, fired, let go, whatever, you know, whatever the euphemism, the way we want to describe it. You know, people have been on, on, on the bench for periods of time. Um, it's so personal. And, you know, what you've got to be able to do is transcend a macro perception of, well, the person got fired, so they must be incompetent or there was an event or they're on the bench, which means they can't get a job. There must be something wrong with them or they've had a couple short stints, you know, something must have gone awry. And I think what really is first and foremost is an exercise in self-reflection and honesty and being able to say what what really happened in these circumstances. Um, because I'll be just very clinical about it. When you're working with, you know, myself or Martha, one of our colleagues who operate at this level, you know, we have our own reputation to selfishly take into consideration. And we will know, sometimes we'll know even before we ask the question what the answer is, and it's a test. Um, what happened or what transpired, or we're going to find out, right? My clients, you know, investors, you know, public companies, uh, the level of rigor that's applied in doing diligence around candidates is exceptionally high. And it's not just, you know, hey, you know, here are the friends, brothers, relatives, references. It's talking to people off the record understanding precisely what went down. Um, when we do references, we're not fishing for negatives or fishing for positives, we're fishing for insight. We wanna understand what happened, what the circumstances were, good, bad, or indifferent, so that then we can make informed decisions around, is this the right fit? Um, because victory isn't one when the person walks, you know, accepts an offer, walks in the door, it's how they perform in that role over time. Do they deliver against the desired outcomes? So, you know, we need, and you know, hey, if you were in a job for 18 months and you delivered against the outcomes, fantastic. I mean, there's a great narrative to be told there. Um, but I think in all these cases, um, you need to be able to own it. Uh, almost nothing is unforgivable within reason. Um, there is, in the words of, you know, our retired colleague, Mark Polanski, there's a job for everyone. Um, and you just have to be able to go through this again in a very clinical, transparent, authentic fashion uh, and share that with the recruiter. And the recruiter, you know, will tell you, you know, look, these circumstances aren't going to work for you. In fact, none of these may work. Here is where you need to spend your time in order to create, you know, the career or job outcome that you're looking for. I'm just going to I think that's hard to add to, Sean, because you were so comprehensive. But I would say. You know, we we just had a situation with a candidate who was not forthcoming about his reasons for departure. And the reason he was not put forward wasn't the reasons for his departure. It was the fact that he wasn't forthcoming about it. Integrity is a leadership quality we all have always wanted and continue to want. So I agree. Transparent. But you don't have to do a whole soliloquy about, you know, the injustices and what all happened. So hit it nip it in the bud, get it right out on the table. But if it was a firing, what did you learn from it? 
How are you a better leader from that? So showing the way you're taking these experiences and bringing them, you know, into your own leadership, understanding of yourself as a leader, I think that can put a little cherry on top. And the other thing I would say is if you find that your last three roles, you were fired, you might want to do some self introspection about the roles you're choosing or the way that you're approaching those roles. And this is like, as you know, as we've been saying this forever, it still holds true. Have your relationships, have your networks. No, because it's true, Sean, the back channels, the referencing, especially, for example, with private equity, they know everybody. They will find out everything. So make sure that your colleagues and the people you were working with are supportive of you and understand the circumstances so that you're not boxed out. And then the only thing I would say on the jumpy, you know, having a jumpy resume is sometimes appearances are jumpier than they really are. If you're, if you, the company kept getting acquired and changing names and you stay with it, make sure you're show, showing an umbrella date. You know, jumpiness can be the death knell of a resume. So make sure your resume isn't indicating a jumpiness that's not there. So good. Yeah, such good advice. Last round, uh, again, I'll give you three scenarios and Martha, you can go first this time. Uh, some CIs won't consider a role unless it reports to the CEO. So how critical is it that the CI report to the CEO? Also, what's the reputation you don't want with executive recruiters? So I guess I'll start with the last one first. Uh, you do not want a reputation as a job hopper to go back to the previous, you don't want a reputation as commanding control and somebody who's very hard on their team. That's an old style, you know, servant leadership is more the norm today. Um, and then in terms of reporting structure, you know, the worst answer you can ever give is it depends, but it does. If this is a back office turnaround and everything is about financial management and this is you're, you're shaping something up for sale, who cares? Report to the CFO, report to the COO, whatever. But if this is about digital transformation and changing the business that we're in and digital literacy and technology has moved to the center of everything that we do, then I do believe a CEO reporting structure is important. And by the way, it's going to be interesting for CEOs in the next X years to look around the executive committee and, hmm, that's a chief data officer. What do they do? That's a chief AI officer. I have one of those. There's a CIO. What do they do? And we've got a chief digital officer. And our COO used to be a CIO. I'm seeing a lot of that. A lot of CIOs become COOs. So I think as the executive committee is populated with these kind of quasi-technology leaders, then the CIO down, you know, you know in the second chair, is not uh, going to deliver the IT value that companies expect from their investment. I believe CEO reporting structure is important when technology is taking center stage in growth. Yeah, and look, I think Martha summed it up very well. I mean, historically, there was a bifurcation, right? If it reported to the CFO, you must be managing for cost. If it reported to the CEO, it was a strategic role. If it reported to someone else, then it was TBD. And, you know, again, what we try to go back to is what's the content of the role and what are the desired outcomes? And let's set that person up to be successful based on those desired outcomes. Um, and, you know, here's the thing, regardless of whether it reports to the CEO, CFO or someone else, 
the role itself, unless it is a purely back office position at this point, which, you know, we don't really do those searches, um, there needs to be an open access leadership or management construct in place where the CIO needs to be able to have the ear of the CEO, even the board or whomever is appropriate uh, without kind of the blockage that um, kind of legacy hierarchical organizational constructs would, would likely dictate. Great stuff. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wind us out here. Uh, Martha Shaw, I want to have you give us one more thing. We're sitting here a year from now. We're doing this podcast again, and uh, 2024 just happened. What's the headline? What's the one-sentence headline for 2024 from a whole talent search uh, perspective, the state of talent? Uh, what do you think it'll be? Or maybe even a word. Is it will be interesting, Sean? It'll, it'll, it'll certainly be interesting, um, but I think that, you know, we live in just such fascinating, exciting times, and the pace of change is, you know, it's, it's really unprecedented. You know, there, there are moonshots going on all over the place, and um, I think that, you know, those people that are able to listen and really hear will stand to gain the most in this coming year. For me, I would say the headline is AI opens up new security challenges for businesses. That I think will be one. AI well, AI investment falls short falls short of returns, of corporate returns, I think will be another. And I think a, a final headline will be wanted data engineers, data architects you know, AI developers, and we don't have enough of them. Well, I'm not going to hold you to it. I'm not going to play it back next year, but I love your perspectives. You two are always so interesting. Appreciate you both taking the time. I know you don't do a lot of these things because you're so busy, but, you know, we cover a lot of territory in the podcast, and everyone knows to look forward to next week. Follow CO.com, and uh, we'll have a blog post with additional content from Martha and Sean. and. Uh, you know, with that, thanks for to you both for all you do for our profession. Uh, again, your thought leadership, your brilliance, your your edgy, your 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 timely, your your fun, and uh, you know we're just fortunate to have you in our profession. So thank you both very much. Yeah, and I'd like you to play that back next year. I like that list of attributes. I'd like to hear that to, one again. I'd like you to package that and and, and send that to <laughs> my CEO, my wife, my kids, my everyone. children. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Martha, <laughs> great it. seeing you. Thank you so much, Dan. Always a pleasure. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Thank you. You've been listening to Tech Whispers, inside the playbook of the best digital leaders, a Woolette and Associates podcast. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show as this helps us connect the world's best digital leaders with those who aspire to learn, grow, and thrive in this amazing profession. Thanks for listening. Until next time.